Welcome, everybody, to the American Shoreline Podcast. My name is Peter Ravel. I'm the co-host of this show. And I'm Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. And let me tell you, today is a special Monday, Tyler. We've got a special guest. We're going to introduce a new show on the American Shoreline Bob uh, Podcast Network. We want to welcome Bob Frump to the show. Bob, thanks for joining us on uh, the American Shoreline Podcast. And better yet, thanks for becoming a host on ASPN. Oh, it's great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, it is one of the subject matters that we have not had a chance to pull together on the network is the shipping and maritime industry, one of the huge industries all along the American shoreline. And Bob, having someone who is as knowledgeable uh, as you are to talk about that subject and to bring that show to the listeners on ASPN, I just want to tell you, we're, we're really thrilled to have you on the line. Well, before we get into our interview with Bob Frump, all about uh, shipping and maritime uh, industries and how they impact the American shoreline, let's take a quick moment to thank our sponsors. We've got three sponsors going into 2019, and we really appreciate all of them. They help keep the lights on at Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Special thanks out there to TI Coastal Services of Wilmington, North Carolina, outstanding coastal engineering firm. Our real good friends at Dune Doctors from Pensacola, Florida, Dune Restoration Firm for all of you folks along the Gulf Coast recovering from Hurricane Michael and the storms. Contact Dune Doctors. And our latest sponsor, LJA Engineering, a great firm located in Texas and around the Gulf, coastal engineering specialist, great folks. Check out all our sponsors on Coastal News Today. Thanks a lot to the sponsors for keeping us going. All right, Bob. Uh, again, it's just great to have you on the show. This is uh, this is a subject area that we knew we needed to cover. It's been on the top of our list, uh, really, from the from the earliest days of of conceiving Coastal News Today and the American Toronto Podcast Network. So. Uh, getting someone in who has knowledge of shipping and ports and and this maritime industry is uh, super cool for us. Tell us a little bit about uh, your background and how you came uh, came to be interested in and work in this area. Well, I actually grew up in uh, central Illinois in a in a small town and. Uh, my first job out of college was for the Wilmington, Delaware News Journal, and uh, it was covering the Ocean County in Delaware, which is Sussex County in the, in the little town of Lewis, Delaware, at the port uh, uh, there and the, the mouth of the Delaware Bay. And I was, uh, I was green enough that uh, uh, I was running a place right on the, on, on the bay and uh, went to bed and saw where the water was and woke up in the morning and the tide was out, and I really wondered what had happened to the water. That's how, <laughs> how little I knew. A um, Midwesterner. I, I was definitely a Midwesterner and, and a landlubber, uh, but I really fell in love with it. Uh, down there, you could see way off on the distance the profiles of the ships coming into Delaware Bay, heading for Marcus Hook and the ports of Philadelphia and Wilmington, and it just uh, planted in my mind a number of questions as to uh, where they were going, what they were carrying, all the things a, a person probably thinks about when they're on the beach uh, 
in July or August and staring out to sea. Um, and uh, from from there, for, for many years, I did a lot of investigative reporting. I did a national uh, reporting of presidential campaigns. And there was a time around 1980 where I just... Uh, uh, I felt that I, I needed to concentrate in one area. And our editor at the time, a wonderful fellow named Gene Roberts, had been the maritime writer at the Norfolk uh, Papers. And he had been trying to convince people to start a maritime beat in Philadelphia and uh, just couldn't really uh, sell the deal. Uh, I, I tried out for it because I thought it was an area where I wouldn't be interfered with in terms of six editors over my shoulder, where I could have uh, a piece of the of the world that I could cover in the way that I wanted to cover it. Hmm. Um, so that was one reason I began covering maritime news. Uh, the the other reason was when I was sort of experimentally covering it, I I was on a dock at uh, at night at the Packer Avenue Terminal in Philadelphia, and I saw this ship just uh, cutting through the water. Uh, not far off of shore, and uh, it it, uh, uh, it it just struck me that this ship was leaving Philadelphia 50 yards from me and traveling this immense distance across a wild area and uh, heading towards uh, Hong Kong or, or Shanghai. And I just fell in love with the idea of uh, uh, what, what happened uh, to the people uh, what the business was about. Uh, it, 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 it literally was akin to falling in love. <laughs> and uh, I just, uh, it, it tickled me pink and uh, always has since then. Well, you know, that sense of autonomy you talked about with your editors is a little bit of trying to find the frontier a little bit, some space to work. Uh, it seems like the maritime industry is fundamentally about getting away from the constraints of the land and getting out on the water. There's a romanticism to this topic. There definitely is. And the people who are in it are definitely of their own tribe. Uh, I, I would say it took me a solid year before people started talking to me on that beat because they, they thought that I really was just passing through and, and was interested in the, the surface uh, uh, new stuff. Uh, uh, but but they, they all do sort of, uh, un, unlike a lot of other uh, industries or companies, they all sort of have this wistful uh, looking out the way uh, rather than inward or uh, on, on the ledger books. There is a romance to it. There is. And I think that that sense of uh, relationship to the water and to the edge of the land is something we hear from a lot of different hosts on ASPN. Everybody, it's, it's not uncommon for people to have that. There's something about the horizon and I think the visual of it and the sound of it uh, that is very much uh, common among people who live and work, especially if they're making their living along the American shoreline. Um, what does it take to earn your stripes as a maritime reporter? I, I guess you had to go through that year. What, at what point did well, they believe that you were worth it? Well, well, the fact that every time I wrote a uh, anything that was halfway critical about them, I was there on the next day. I wasn't hiding, so we could we could thrash it out. And 
if I was making mistakes, I'd correct them. But more often than not, I, I would explain the, uh, the second of the First Amendment to them uh, and the importance of a fourth estate. And, uh, uh, and eventually they got, they got used to me. Uh, it wasn't so much being nice to them as, to, as, as it was to showing them that I was dedicated to getting the story factually correct and them understanding that that may involve uh, criticism here and there. But it also shows people the importance of uh, ports, of shipping. Uh, and it also showed their, their romanticism. What, what kind of, what kind of stories does a maritime writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer or in other major port cities of the United States, what is the beat about? Well, I think, uh, I think the, the intersection is a vital one within any, within any community uh, that has a port or a shipyard or, uh, you know, any sort of uh, waterway uh, connection, even if it's inland on the, on the Great Lakes, on the, on the rivers. Um, it's not something that Americans tend to think about. Uh, the UK or Norway or uh, Italy, certainly Greece, uh, I mean, that's a, uh, a major deal within the, uh, the country. It's a major employer. Uh, right. Here, we don't, we don't tend to see that. Um, but it's basically showing sort of the, at times, massive consequences that uh, uh, ports or shipping can have for, for, for positive or, or negative. Bob, I'm curious to know, when you're covering... Uh, this industry, who exactly do you speak with? Who are your leads? Are you speaking with, um, you know, corporate executives and managers in, within a shipping company? Or do, do you actually get to interface with captains and crew? Um, you know, I guess, I suppose you could probably uh, sess out the story wherever you'd like, but where did you go? What was your sense of how to cover that? Sure. I mean, it's a it's a multi-level approach. You have a, a bunch of uh, different agencies in any port. I think you can have 17 or 18 different. Um, if you look at the Delaware River, you've got uh, overlapping government jurisdictions. You've got port authorities. You've got federal regulations. You've got EPAs, pilot associations, uh, all of these different agencies. And each of them has a particular viewpoint. And uh, uh, so I certainly covered the official stuff and took the press releases and everything. Uh, but in this diverse community, uh, just talking to people and, uh, you know, running it as a beat and saying, hey, what's happening? Uh, and if you really if you really wanted to find out what was happening at the Port of Philadelphia, you would talk off the record to the Port of Camden, New Jersey. <laughs> and, of course, they tell you everything that's happening wrong at the Port of Philadelphia. And if you want to cover the Camden, New Jersey port, you talk to the Port of Philadelphia, return the favor, and offer I could say what's happening wrong in Camden, New Jersey. So right. you know, there's a lot of com a lot of competition in the port of, business. A lot, of, a lot of competition. Most of it good natured, not that cutthroat. But uh, but but so it would be easy to 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 define the real issues, not just the official ones, because once. Once they once they know who you are and what your intent is, there is a there is a willingness to open up and discuss the issues. How long did you spend at the Philadelphia Inquirer as the maritime reporter? I was there from 1980 through through uh, 
early 1986. So it was it was five years. It was a a real commitment, and uh, a lot of that was investigative reporting, because uh, while I did spend a lot of time uh, explaining to the community what was what was happening, uh, it also became apparent to me that uh, uh, there was some like serious systemic flaws in the American merchant marine, and the types of ships that we were sending out to sea were really old rust buckets and unsafe. Um, Tell us about that. Is that the is that the area of the investigative work you did on the yeah. uh, safety quality of the ships? Yes. Uh, you know, talk about that. And I think one thing I've that's relevant to this that I'm always curious about is uh, how ships are flagged right. and ships being flagged in the U.S. versus in Panama or other places where they're commonly flagged outside of the United States. Can you tell us is what sure. is how does all this work? Sure. And what did you find? Well. I, I mean, I went into the beat expecting to find that uh, the, the really bad ships were the flags of convenience ships, the, they, that they were, you know, really run by U.S. interests, but they were flagged in Liberia or Panama uh, because those countries had far less uh, regulation uh, and so that the, the ships would not be subject to great safety standards. Um, what the truth of it was was almost the exact opposite. Um, the the U.S. flagships, which were permitted to engage in domestic commerce, the the Jones Act, um, tended to be very old ships and very and, and many of them unsafe. And this was because if you're if you're shipping from one point in the U.S. to another, uh, Jacksonville to San Juan, Puerto Rico, for example. Uh, you have to have an American flag ship. That means it has to have been built in an American yard, and it needs to have uh, U.S. citizens, crew, and, and offices. Huh. And that all that sounds is... good. Uh, it sounds like it would be supported. Um, but the reality of it is, is that U.S. ships are so expensive to build that they just keep the old ones in service. Huh. And and that's what was happening. I mean, you have you still had in 1980. You had World War II ships that were built under emergency conditions, uh, still sailing, and at about twice the age that most ships are sent to the uh, scrapyard. Uh, a Liberian flagship, for example, could not be 20 years old. They they would not flag a ship that was 21 years old. Huh. But in the U.S., so it was common to have 40-year-old ships. Bob, is that requirement that ships that uh, are operating between U.S. territories or U.S. ports have to be built in the U.S. and crewed by Americans? Is that the Jones Act? That's that's correct. Yes. And you know, when this uh, this can't be unknown to the industry out there that if you look at the quality of American ships, uh, that they tend to be older uh, because of this requirement is that often discussed and debated in the ports around the u.s and what is the take what is the discussion based on uh well the, on jones, the, jones, act act. Is, is, the jones act really is fiercely defended um by the uh, shipyard uh unions shipyard uh owners mm -hmm. okay. uh, ship owners and maritime unions because it's seen as a uh, as a as a way to to keep the the u.s maritime sector stronger uh, and, you know, I believe that it could, the, the, 
the error that's happened here is that um, uh, the way the Jones Act was meant to work is that after your ship wore out, you scrapped it and built a new one. Um, and, yeah. and that part of it just hasn't happened, in part because the Coast Guard and the American Bureau of Shipping have, uh, have allowed these old ships to sail. And, and that's where the, my investigative reporting uh, kicked into play, and I think, I think probably made a difference. So in, in the analysis of that issue, I, have you tracked that issue you know, since your time at the Philadelphia Inquirer over the oh, years? Yeah. Uh, and have you seen the downside effect of that? What, what do you find when you, you see that this law is having this unintended consequence of keeping older, less safe ships at sea? Well, it, it goes through a cycle um, as, as a result or partly as a result of the pressure we put on uh, at the Philadelphia Inquirer in a, in, a, in, a, in a series that really did last five years. Uh, there were reforms. Uh, we did a takeout on this uh, old ship that sank the SS Marine Electric. And uh, in that case, there were three uh, survivors in the... Uh, cold waters of in February of 1983 off the Virginia coast. And miraculously, these three guys uh, survived. Uh, and, and they essentially turned state's evidence, you know. They, they explained how these old ships were run with, with uh, clearly uh, uh, inferior hatches and holes in the hull. Uh, all of these things the Coast Guard overlooked. Uh, and, and the Coast Guard overlooked it for a good reason, because that was their direction. If they, uh. if they were to shut down one of those ships, they would have a congressman on their back. Uh, they would be accused by the unions of being un-American and unpatriotic. Uh, wow. So over a period of years, the Coast Guard caved. Um, Post-Marine Electric, post the Inquirer series, uh, they cleaned up. Uh, they scrapped more than 70 ships. Um, they created the now famous uh, rescue swim, Coast Guard rescue swimmer team, and they made it require that you have uh, the, the Gumby suits, the survival suits on, mm -hmm. on board ships. So you get into that area of reform. Um, and I, I think there was an historian from the days of steamboat uh, explosions that said, all maritime reform is written in blood. Um, so it takes a Titanic to, you know, to create new regulations. It takes a marine electric uh, to, to create a, a more aware and tougher uh, inspection status. Well, you know, it's not uncommon in all political issues that I, to some extent, that uh, our political process responds to crisis. It's very difficult to, to get the proactive initiatives yeah. out there until yeah. the cost is too high to bear. Exactly. exactly. Um, after the Philadelphia Inquirer, where did you head off to? Well, the, uh, uh, the owners of the Philadelphia Inquirer was a corporation called Knight Ritter. And um, there was a, uh, a, news, a daily newspaper that was actually founded by Samuel Morse uh, called the Journal of Commerce. And yeah. uh, it was uh, a paper that covered uh, international transportation and trade. And so I was managing editor of the, of the Journal of Commerce for four years and, uh, you know, it, it really focused uh, on, on maritime and uh, ran a staff that had 
we have bureaus in every country short of Antarctica. Uh, wow. Every um, so that was that was an exciting time too, and I and I really got to see. I, I certainly knew the world, the shipping world, pretty well from uh, my Philadelphia work. But Still the around the journal was uh, another experience and just a, a very influential little paper. Still around, still highly regarded, uh, and I understand now owned by the Economist. If that's if that's the latest, I think the Economist certainly owned it at one time. I I, I think that it's gone on to another group, but I called IHS, but I'm not positive about that. And one of the things, Bob, when we were looking for a host, why I was really excited when we came across your background and and willingness to to host. Uh, a podcast um, is your experience as an author and a writer about uh, shipping and maritime issues with a specific uh, focus on commercial uh, maritime issues as opposed to military. Um, tell us about some of the books that you've put together and uh, and released and uh, sure. what you've well, got coming up. <laughs> I don't know if you have a book coming up. Sure. Uh, well, the uh, the book that uh, I wrote in, or that was published in 2002, really was about the Marine Electric case. And uh, it was, uh, the title of it is Until the Sea Shall Free Them, uh, uh, Life, Death, and Survival in the American Merchant Marine. And, and there it was uh, re really just the epic story of how uh, the ship uh, sailed out, how it had uh, deteriorated, uh, how, how these poor men uh, survived and most, most of them died, um, how the uh, rescue uh, forces were frustrated and that they didn't have rescue swimmers so they couldn't really reach some of the, the people. Uh, but then it also went into uh, uh, a pretty heroic investigation where a small band of Coast Guard Crusaders were able to finally uh, end this three decade long uh, sloughing off on inspections and just uh, draw, draw a line in the sand and send the, the old rust bust buckets to sea. Mm. Uh, the second maritime book I, I wrote was an account of uh, uh, almost a prequel to the Marine Electric in many ways. Uh, it was the story of how these two tankers in 1952, uh, at almost the same time, uh, split in two uh, during a storm off uh, Cape Cod. Uh, and the name of that is Two Tankers Down. And that uh, involves some of the elements that uh, you, you will see in the, in the movie, The Finest Hour, although huh. uh, that's, that's, it's not, that's not based on my book. Uh, but, but it's uh, it, that that shows the one part of the uh, the crisis there, where the, uh, a fellow named Bernie Weber made an impossible rescue um, in an open boat um, of the SS Pendleton. Um, but but uh, uh, in in all of these cases, were these the American flagged vessels that you were talking about? Sort of the older, less safe, less well maintained. Uh, yes, these were uh, uh, these were the American flagships that uh, were left over from World War II, and even though they weren't real old at that time in 1952, uh, many of them, if not most of them, 
uh, had a really um, uh, unsafe condition almost at a molecular level because the, uh, the ships made in World War II were the first welded vessels. And uh, as I think everyone knows, there was just this incredible uh, push by Kaiser and others who, uh, you know, every, every 30 minutes a ship was being launched to carry goods to England. And in many ways, that industrial effort won the war. Well, the problem that they were facing is that uh, some of the ships, particularly the T2 tankers, uh, were splitting in two, uh, even at the dock. In 1943, there was a ship called the SS Schenectady, and uh, it, it literally just caved in to a V form at the dock and split straight in two. And it baffled them. They Not thought it was good. The, uh, the welding. Um, but what, what had happened is that ships prior to this time were riveted. Um, so the steel that you used in it didn't make that much difference. If the steel fractured, it would just run to the rivet, maybe two feet. But if you didn't have riveting in your hull and the steel fractured, then it would just go around the hull or down the length of the hull. And that's what was happening if you had a T2 tanker in water that was under 52 degrees. Uh, the uh -huh. cell structure began acting more like a crystal than uh, flexible steel because it had so much sulfur. Right. Um, so what uh, what happened is both of those tankers uh, split into at the almost the same time um, and the uh, the rescues were were made uh, with uh, some loss of life not great loss of life uh, but the true tragedy of it was that uh, the Coast Guard Marine Board of Inspection sloughed off the importance um, and they, they just kept all these ships running they put uh, steel bands around them but um, that didn't really stop the problem. Mm, wow. So you saw yeah, that continuing all the way up till 1980. Uh, the Marine Electric was a World War II leftover ship. So by the time you uh, uh, started to cover this space and really get into the, the shipyards, you were, you were seeing remnant ships from, like Liberty ships basically is what we're talking about like piece together in a matter of days to just send. I mean, that's really incredible how long those ships served <laughs> our, uh, our maritime interests. Now, Bob, one of the things that uh, I think our audience is, would, would be curious about because uh, we work on the coastline and live on the coastline. And, and of course, we know that there are ports on the coastline, but they're usually surrounded by high barbed wire fences. They're secure facilities. And we don't really get to go in and see the way these uh, places operate. Um, and they're, they're hugely important. They're tremendous aspects of our economy that, that come in and go out uh, through these places. Would you kind of paint a picture for the mo what the modern port looks like for those of us that live on the other side of the fence? Sure. The, the, uh, the, the, the modern-day uh, uh, container port, uh, you know, has, has changed the seaman's life a lot, and, and it's reshaped the, the look of the, uh, 
the wharfs and the and the docks to a great degree, uh, but in some ways it's unchanged in that you you just uh, you you have this excitement of a ship coming in. It's docked by tugboats. Uh, it, it's immediately uh, uh, attended to by these huge container uh, cranes, which always remind me of the Star Wars walking camel tanks. The way they uh, just uh, reach out over the vessel and the, the shape of them. Uh, you have all of these uh, various uh, smells from welding to uh, fuel to diesel. Uh, you've got uh, hundreds of trucks idling, uh, waiting to pick up the containers. Uh, and you, you certainly have uh, you know a number of longshoremen, uh, fewer than you did uh, 50 years ago, but they're, they're also uh, skirting around and uh, you know, minding the containers as they come off the, the ship that are locked onto the onto the trucks. Um, you know, it's very uh, uh, it's a very time is money sort of atmosphere where you know, there's a great uh, urgency to unload the ship, and then there's a great urgency to uh, to reload the ship. Uh, the cost of those ships can be fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars a day, even more when you add capitalization costs so uh, that really that really drives the time and the turnaround so we've got uh, in the American port system uh, goods generally through the container process now uh, I noticed earlier this month in January that the largest uh, container cranes were being shipped from China to the United States uh, to be installed I think in Norfolk Virginia right uh, there's a lot happening on the size of container ships because of the Panama Canal expansion and Panamax ships. And uh, can you talk about the ramifications of this uh, change in the Panama Canal? What's happening on the eastern seaboard ports of the United States? Well, well, yes, it, ha- it has a, a, a ruling effect on all the ports. I mean, all the ports are, to a certain degree, uh, you know, competitive. They're they're quite willing to take. Uh, other business, Baltimore would love to have Norfolk's business. Uh, uh, Philadelphia would uh, would as well. Uh, even uh, Wilmington, Delaware, and Philadelphia and Camden are highly competitive among each other. Uh, so the the ability to have larger ships, uh, you'll you'll see uh, you know this multi million dollar uh, effort in the Delaware River and Bay to uh, to just just take the channel from 40 feet to 45 feet so it can handle uh, the larger ships that move through the Panama the Panama Canal. Uh, and, and if they don't get that extra five feet, then they're at a real competitive advantage in Philadelphia could lose. It's, uh, it has a specialty in uh, uh, South American uh, fruits, produce, and, and flowers. Um, so it, it can maintain that it feels only if it's able to open itself to the to the larger ships. Um, sounds like it might be easy. It's not. I think that's been a ten-year project. Uh, you have uh, you know a major issue as to what you do with the dredge spoils that uh, come up from the uh, the bottom of the of the river in the bay. Um, that can impact environment, uh, and uh, you also have. Uh, Unforeseen uh, obstacles. I think they ran into uh, a uh, an, an unforeseen 
rock shelf that delayed them for two or three years and necessitated that they bring in super grains and all, all these other things. Um, so there, that's a fascinating uh, inter interplay where you, you may think, uh, well, well, it's good, good for Panama. <laughs> you know, you've gotta, they, they can handle bigger ships or, or the ships that are moving through can be bigger. But it really plays out on any, any major seaport that wants to be a player. So you see all of those interests um, from uh, commerce, transportation, and also, you know, environment and, and conservation. Yeah, that's uh, this is a, a a major source of discussion across the American shoreline, especially, you know, for example, here in in Texas and Galveston, Houston, Ship Channel, right there. Uh, currently, um, the hot topic is the Coastal Spine project that the uh, Army Corps of Engineers is currently investigating. Um, it's out for public comment currently. Uh, but you know, one of the questions that I'm interested in is in your covering uh, these ports. How do how, how, first of all, I should I should just stop and say I'm. Ownership of these ports is public, right? Uh, for, the, for the most part, um, they they generally are, um, you know, capitalized through bond issues and then rented out to private uh, operators. Okay, so you know, one of the again, there's kind of this veil of I don't want to say secrecy, but you know, this is a complicated universe that those of us on the other side of the big barbed wire fence don't. It can, can find it hard to understand, but uh, how how in, how uh, uh, reliant are these major ports on uh, the Army Corps of Engineers to provide the these major kind of capital investments and in, and in maintenance dredging? That's my first question. I'm gonna I'm gonna do a double tap here because I'm also interested in how these ports manage the politics of those projects. And for example, in Galveston Bay, the Galveston Bay Foundation is, you know, eagerly awaiting what the Army Corps of Engineers is going to decide to do there because it will have a dramatic impact on the environmental health of the bay. And the political uh, obstacle course there is probably of paramount importance. Well, I mean, the dependence on the Army Corps of Engineers and, and dredging is really absolute. I mean, there's just, there's no way around it. Uh, I mean, particularly for ports like Philadelphia and Baltimore that are somewhat uh, inland, uh, you know, the uh, just on a regular basis, they, they have to have those, uh, 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 the uh, channels uh, clear and clean, um, or, or the ships just can't really uh, sail through. And then you have things like the Chesapeake and Delaware Canal that slices across uh, uh, Delaware and connects the Delaware River and the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, that's a core um, responsibility. Um, but you'll, you'll see that at every, every major port, even those that are uh, closer to the ocean. If, if you've got to have that uh, clear away. And 40, 45 feet now is not the, the new big deal. It's 55, 60 feet yeah. in some yeah. cases. Um, so, wow, that's the, you know the channel. good news there is if you do have uh, if you do have like uh, deeper channels, that means you know 
you don't have to transfer cargo into you know a lot of a lot of times really deep draft ships would come in and then transfer cargo to uh, shallow draft vessels and whenever you do something like that uh, you have a chance of spills of pollution of accident uh, it's very mm -hmm. inefficient so so there is a case to be made for the uh, uh, for for the deeper the deeper channels although most of it is a is a commercial case um, in terms of the you know the interests it was it was all, always fascinating to me how um, you know the interests were um, channeled uh, and whether they could be brought together in one area uh, of agreement or whether they were in, in conflict with with each other um, in the Philadelphia area at least for a while there there was a trend of being inclusive so uh, the the maritime the informal maritime committees that ran would bring together uh, conservationists and the Audubon mm -hmm. Society early on in these things and uh, you know do their best to uh, uh, to find out where the uh, where the problems were so that they weren't obliterating the horseshoe crab uh, uh, in uh, in in the lower uh, Delaware Bay um, you know, Delaware itself historically uh, set a uh, coastal uh, protection area some some years back, um, and, and that was an important for maintaining the the marsh area and the bird sanctuaries along the uh, the Delaware River. Is um, that is that collaborative process still healthy, or are you seeing any differences uh, in that? I you know it's never quite. Uh, I thought there was a, an excellent movement in Philadelphia where um, there was a recognition that, um, yes, there were a lot of um, good commercial opportunities uh, along the Delaware River in Philadelphia where um, you might have conservation areas or you might do uh, sort of uh, gentrified uh, development areas. And what they tried to do was to tie that in also to port development. So that if you were displacing a dock in the heart of Philadelphia, uh, at least some of that money would be set aside for uh, uh, creating a dock uh, uh, in an undeveloped area uh, and uh, to, to conservation uh, and, and preservation. Uh, it, uh, it, it, I, think it, I think it helped uh, bring all the interests together briefly, but I don't, I don't think it's really ever uh, caught potholes away um, you get uh, you get too many uh, you get too many uh, conflicts along the way and and uh, if people people generally duke it out um, and when that happens generally I think the commercial interests tend to win because um, uh, they, they have a clear argument and they have a, a sustained drive so uh, that that certainly gives them the edge over time well, it's an interesting uh, area, a fault line is what I like to call it, an area where these two competing uh, interests that are both, you know, so, it, this is so complicated. Obviously, it's hard to weigh the economic uh, power of these commercial ports and and all of the quality of life and, and you know, these, these places impact our lives on a daily basis, I think it's safe to say. Uh, 
and and weigh that against the health of of a bay or a beach or a shore area. So, uh, and and I'll tell you, Bob, uh, this is one of the reasons why Peter and I are so darn excited to have your new show, Ship to Shore, on ASPN. Uh, tell us briefly uh, what you are planning on covering on your first few shows. Absolutely. Uh, well, it's a uh, you know it's a real uh, buffet of choices here, and uh, I still feel the uh, the same way as I did that uh, one day I looked out at the ship and fell in love with the the industry. Um, so there's just, there's so much to cover. Uh, one thing I think I'd like to do is to uh, is is to look at uh, you know the shipwrecks that actually have occurred as a as a good way to discuss uh, some of the issues. Uh, they're they're important in a, in and of themselves, but I think it's also engaging. Uh, a, a good narrative uh, always helps uh, illustrate what uh, uh, what what good issues are. So that's certainly uh, one thing I'll I'll be doing. I'm not sure that. Uh, shipwreck of the week is the right uh, title on it, uh, but uh, I, I it's would available like to for you if you those. want it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, I mean, certainly that's one. Uh, the the other is talking to uh, some of the people I've run across who uh, you may not you may not know you know what their what their duties are and what they do. Um, you may see the tug boatman uh, as you're crossing a bridge. Um, uh, but uh, to to actually talk to some of these folks, it's just really eliminating their uh, their. For, for the most part, I found they're wonderful people. They're they're in jobs where uh, you, you know they make uh, a, a lot of very uh, hard decisions that aren't theoretical at all. <laughs> it's no, it, there's no there's no delete or reset button on a tugboat here. <laughs> I, you know, I would love to listen to that show. I I have no idea what those guys do day in and day out. I know they're pushing big ships around, but there's a lot more to it. Uh, the pilots, that you know, the whole industry is something that I think, uh, as Tyler says, we're on the other side of the fence. We sort of look at it, see it over there, and it looks interesting, but don't know a lot of the details and the people that work in it. Uh, it'd be great to illuminate that, I think, for the what? listeners on ASPN. One of the most important crew members is the cook. <laughs> well, best uh, best recipes from the tugboat man. I think that'd Absolutely. be interesting. <laughs> yeah, that would be a good one. I'd like that. I, like that. I can yeah. only imagine that if you're on a uh, a, a long transoceanic uh, route, that the cook becomes absolutely the most important person, uh, at least as far as morale goes. That's. That's a lot of your entertainment. It really is. I did a uh, I did a crossing like that uh, for the Philadelphia Inquirer, and went on a uh, tanker from Tunisia to Marcus Hook, Pennsylvania, and uh, you 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 get your own little uh, uh, town going there, and the, the central uh, the central part of it is indeed the uh, you know the dinner. It, 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 it all joking aside, it really, it really is a uh, an important thing for for morale, uh, particularly that, on that ship because it was uh, it, it was crewed by an Italian crew, so they were 
Very. Uh, <laughs> I would expect it to be good. That's, that's my people. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the Italian, uh, the Italian on the show is uh, Peter Ravella, <laughs> is uh, letting us know that the, that his people are going to do a good job on that one. You bet. Uh, so uh, the show sounds like it's not limited to to the economics of the maritime industry or the port operations or the politics or the dredging. And uh, Bob, this is what I, I'm looking forward to is some of this, the human side of this thing and the insights totally. and uh, you know, how they, you know, I, how does this industry fit into the American shoreline with so much else happening in these bays and estuaries around the United States? Uh, this, this thing has a, this industry has a big footprint and I wonder how it fits into the relationships to the other economic interests and uh, say environmental interests along the shoreline. I think there's, you're, you're right. There's a, a lot to talk about here. Well, I mean, the other thing is that uh, when you look at navigable waterways in the, you know, in America, um, you, you know, we, we, we tend to think of the shore as being uh, off of New Jersey or, or California. Uh, but there's an awful lot of uh, uh, maritime uh, ac- activity on the uh, on the rivers and the and the canal systems as well, and uh, hope to hope to touch a little bit on uh, on that as well. And uh, I, I I think that people uh, uh, can illustrate the uh, the issues and the subjects. Uh, I'm mean, gonna have a good a number of uh, friends who are uh, uh, coast guard divers, and they. Uh, uh, are are a, a real uh, interesting uh, uh, tribe in and of themselves, but they're, they're totally dedicated to uh, uh, environment. Uh, you know, they just uh, they, they they see an oil spill, they see uh, they, they they see a real uh, a crime and tragedy there. Um, it's a uh, it, it's it's there. Well, there are interesting subcultures and a lot of very devoted people that. I, I think that uh, your listeners would be interested in meeting. Yeah, and they're and they're communities that are not easily accessed. I think when you talked about becoming a reporter in Wilmington, Delaware, and and you know spending the first year just getting in the door, uh, I think most Americans have that same distant relationship, and and we're not in the communities. But I hope you can bring those communities. Uh, to the listenership and introduce these people because they they're remarkable. Agree, agree. Uh, so I'm curious about ship to shore. Now I've heard that phrase a lot. Uh, I think it's kind of a term of art in the business. And uh, uh, it, it, tell us about ship to shore as a phrase <laughs> and why you picked that as the name. Well, uh, I uh, it, it is sort of an old fashioned. Uh, uh, name in this in the age of uh internet and uh access web access on on board ships to email and everything else but there there was a time when there was uh, every every ship ca- carried a dedicated uh radio man and uh, uh and the only way really that you could reach uh, uh land was through uh telegraph or uh if you were close enough uh, a ship to shore uh radio slash telephone. So that's where ship to shore comes from. Uh, but I think it's also indicative of uh, how how ships in the maritime uh, community and, and transportation in general can affect the, 
the shore and the shoreline and the coastal areas. And I also like the just what's in, inherent in that phrase, which is the perspective from the ocean inward, uh, as opposed to the land outward, and uh, the perspective of what it of the ship. And I think that's I, I just love that. that it's a great name. I'm for it. Great. I'm glad you picked it. Love the name. Love the name. All right. So we have a little bit of time left, Bob. And I, you're, you're just the man to talk to for our first ever top five shipwrecks. Okay. And uh, uh, this is, of course, it, you've, you've literally written the book on one of these. Uh, a couple um, of them. A couple of them. But let's hear the Bob Frump top five shipwrecks, and I guess we can limit it. We could call it the modern era if you'd like. We can, we can, uh, and keep. We'll keep it merchant. Well, we won't be doing. Uh, uh, yeah, no military. No, yeah, no naval wrecks here that are. are gotcha, gotcha. Uh, and and uh, you know, I'll uh, I'll leave out passenger liners as as well because I think probably everyone knows the big ones there. Yeah, uh, but in uh, in my realm, I would say that uh, uh, in the modern realm, I'd say that the uh, the the biggest ones uh, uh, would include the Pendleton and the Fort Mercer, those two that went off uh, went down in 1952, and uh, what made those great uh, was the rescue effort, uh, as you'll see in the movie The Finest Hours, which is pretty a pretty good uh, rendition of it. Uh, but also in the fact that uh, the rescuers were uh, absolute heroes there, but the, the investigators just really didn't get the job done. Um, I think this the second uh, uh, greatest or worst shipwreck uh, in contemporary times would be the Marine Sulphur Queen. And this is in 1963. And it's, a uh, uh, again, a modified T2 tanker left over from World War II. And it simply disappears. Uh, it's huh. it's carrying liquid sulfur. Uh, it's down in the in the Bermuda Triangle, uh, you know, off the uh, off the uh, Cuban Cuban coast, and they just don't hear anything from them. Period. And the only thing that they find ever uh, is a life ring with a tattered uh, uh, seaman's uh, shirt tied to the life oh. ring, and what the oh. marine investigators called the clear marks of large predatory fish. Um, oh goodness gracious! So the, the 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 only conclusion is that a lot of the a lot of the survivors, 39, 39 men, I believe, uh, uh, some of them may have survived, but uh, were basically uh, attacked attacked by by sharks. Uh, awful uh, awful situation. Um, I I throw in the the marine electric. Uh, because of its uh, you know, the heroic efforts of the investigators and the, and these three guys who uh, survived the uh, uh, capsizing and were courageous enough to buck their unions and uh, their company and, and, and tell the truth about how bad the uh, situation was. Um, and I think the, the one of the, what may be one of the most important shipwrecks is more recent. It's the SLS El Faro, which went down in October 1st, 2015 in Hurricane Joaquin, uh, with yeah. the loss of uh, all on board there. And um, I think in popular lore, 
uh, that's kind of blamed on the captain. We, we could have made better decisions for sure. Uh, but but again, you saw this very old ship. Uh, it had open lifeboats for goodness sakes. Uh, wow, Lusitania type lifeboats that you know were <laughs> were banned in 1986. But because the ship was so old, it was it was grandfathered. Uh, it had all of these deficiencies in it. Um, uh, and, and fortunately, you had the uh, NTSB and the and the Coast Guard again doing a truly heroic uh, investigation, locating the ship in 15,000 feet of water. Uh, this wow. uh, radio-sized uh, data recording was missing, and uh, they were and had no beacon on it, and they were able to pinpoint it and bring up the recordings of the last hours of the crew on the on the on the bridge, uh, which which makes for a, a heartrending. It it is. Yeah. We we've listened to a bit of it, and of course, this is also the subject of your book, The Captains of Thor, isn't it? This is uh, yes, your latest book. Yes, that's um, correct. That's correct. We're and it's my sense is from from reading the summary of the book so far. Uh, I have not read it yet, but I intend to. Um, is that the captain was unfairly maligned in this, and has the captain been resurrected? Is in terms of the analysis of the wreck, or what 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 do you think really contributed, or what was this really about, uh, as opposed to an individual failure by an individual seaman, even well, though it's the captain? Well, I think the captain definitely definitely wasn't at fault and should have uh, uh, should have paid better attention. Uh, but at the same time, uh, he he also did not know of the deficiencies in the ship, and. Um, at, at the same time, at the same time that uh, the SS El Faro sank, there was another ship out there called the Emerald Express that saw even worse weather, and uh, it got blown around and even up into a mangrove swamp. But everyone was safe, and the ship was salvaged because it was indecent. It was indeed it was seaworthy, and the El Faro was of questionable seaworthiness because it was so old, uh, because they'd lowered it two feet in the water. Uh, because all of these things were uh, passed on as safe when they when they weren't, and um, and that's what the Marine Board and the NTSB was able to pick up on, hmm. and and I think you're going to see um, a great significance on the inland waterways, um, on uh, on the merchant fleet in general, uh, because the Marine Board of Investigation recommended these tougher standards, and they really do seem to be. Um, applying them in terms of inspections. Uh, most most inspections were, okay, you got to fix that. I want it fixed in six months. Okay, uh, it's six months later. You still haven't fixed it. I want it fixed in six months. Um, so there you don't just have uh, uh, merchant marine uh, ships sinking in hurricanes. You have duck boats sinking in the lake with yeah. uh, whole families on board. Uh, you know, you have barges breaking loose in the Mississippi because they, uh, their, their fittings are uh, not proper. Um, all of those things are going to be cracked down on. Uh, also, the, the military uh, uh, merchant fleet, the military uh, uh, sea lift, the horribly old ships, average age of 46 years. Um, wow. Average age of 46 years. And uh, I think that 
Um, I think the Coast Guard is kind of working uh, quietly because this is not an age of regulation. It's no. easy to be accused of being anti-American and part of the deep state if you do your job. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I, don't, I don't mean to get political here. It's just that these guys are really dedicated. These people are really dedicated. Uh, and, and, they're, and they're doing what they're supposed to do, and they have a mandate to do it. And I think, uh, I think you'll see well, a, lot of, uh, a lot safer waterways because of the SSL bar. So that's got a very high on my, on my list. That, that's good to hear. I, this, this, you know, in terms of the trends in the U.S. maritime industry, perhaps a, you know, a new beginning towards something a little more safer, a little more scrutiny, uh, you know, uh, and why not? It's in the public interest for this industry to operate safely and soundly. It's in the interest of the people whose lives are at stake, but it's also in the economic interest of the country because the maritime shipping industry is a huge, huge part of the American economy. And you think, you know, if there's a place you would need to spend a little money, this would be a good place to do it. Exactly. I mean, that's my hope is the, the safe, the safety crackdown will prompt shipbuilding. And, and, and would that transfer into higher rates for uh, the shipping from one place in America to another? Uh, you, you know, probably just a few pennies, really. It, it, it's something that we can sustain and absorb. And it could, uh, it could rebuild American uh, shipyards, or at least some of them. And right. that's something. I, I remember when I was first in Philadelphia, and you'd, you'd see the whistle blow at 5.30 p.m. at Sun Shipyard, and it was just stirring to see 7,000, 8,000 people changing shifts. And, you know, they're mm -hmm. walking in their hard hats over 100 yards uh, across, and they've got their lunch pails, and every one of them was going back to a middle-class household. Uh, and they all were artisans. They had, you know, great-paying jobs. Right. It'd be great to see that come back. It would be, and, you know, for for those parts of our audience that are not uh, already captivated by this fascinating world of of the maritime industries, uh, shipbuilding, you know, these people reside on the American shoreline. They are stakeholders. They are surfers. They are fishermen. Uh, they they participate in the broader coastal economy and community. And that's why we are so excited for your show, Bob, is that uh, this is this is kind of a shadowy area. I, I have I will say in my experience, uh, it's always it's just always been I'm always been interested in it and curious, but uh, I've never really and I'm sure, you know, you've spent a, a career uh, learning and and figuring this stuff out. But it's just going to be so great to, to shine a, a light on it on ASPN. Well, I'm really looking forward to it. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's great fun and a privilege. Uh, so my, my thanks to you. Yep. We're glad to have you, Bob, and uh, appreciate you taking the time to introduce your show, the Ship to Shore podcast coming soon on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Uh, one of the great additions, I think, to the network so far, Bob, and we're really looking forward to your show starting and uh, getting it out there to the listeners. Uh, thanks to our sponsors, uh, TI Coastal Services, uh, Dune Doctors, 
and LJA Engineering. Thanks a lot, folks, for keeping us on the air. And uh, Tyler, appreciate the time today. Bob, looking forward to hearing from you soon. In my car, going too far, never coming back again.